Well, my name is Hunter Hambrick. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence and so, so glad that you decided to join us this morning, especially if it's your very first time. Uh, if I've not gotten a chance to meet you yet, would love to do so after service. Uh, I get to oversee our community groups, CGs as we call them, and these are small groups of eight to 12 folks who meet in one another's homes or here at the building throughout the week, and uh, they get together to share a meal, uh, study God's word together, fellowship, share prayer, and uh, it's definitely the highlight of my week personally. And uh, we have 12 groups that meet right now, some that uh, meet on Sundays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and even Saturdays. And if you're new to Providence, I highly, highly encourage you to check one of these out. Uh, there's no better way to become a part of the life of our church than by joining a community group. And we really believe that 2023 will be your best year yet if it's your best year relationally. Uh, we say there's no significant change without a significant relationship. And I don't know about you, but I got some changes I want to make in my life in this new year. And it's only going to come through the context of relationship with other brothers and sisters following after Jesus. So zero pressure to uh, check out a group. You can visit one and never come back again. The leaders will not be offended, I promise. Uh, but check them out, shop around a little bit, and uh, I can talk with you after service if you're interested in finding out more. Well, this morning, we are starting a brand new series called The Jesus Way, and I am super, super excited for this collection of talks. I really believe that God is going to be able to do something in our hearts and our minds through this series of messages. Uh, right out the gate, though, I want to mention that this series is highly indebted to three sources. The first is a book by Eugene Peterson called The Jesus Way. Uh, Peterson is probably best known for his paraphrase of scripture, the Message Bible, and uh, he was also a pastor and a scholar, though, and he wrote a series of books on spiritual formation, and uh, one of them, The Jesus Way, this one has the subtitle, A Conversation on the Ways that Jesus is the Way. Highly, highly recommend it to you. Uh, this teaching today and the next eight weeks or so won't be a one-to-one -one to Peterson's book, but there will definitely be a lot of overlapping themes. Uh, secondly, is a resource by a pastor called John Mark Comer um, called Practicing the Way. Uh, John Mark is the former pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, and uh, he has since then launched a nonprofit called Practicing the Way. And uh, I can't think of another teacher or Bible preacher who has so shaped my thinking and understanding of God's word the past few years than John Mark. Uh, you can check out his podcast on Spotify or iTunes. And then last but not least is a teaching series called The Way of Jesus. We're getting the theme this morning. It's all about the way of Jesus, the Jesus way uh, by John Tyson. Uh, Tyson is the senior pastor of Church of the City in New York City. Uh, he came here to Providence a couple years ago and preached. And uh, I'm not going to lie to you. Parts of my message this morning are basically a copy and paste of his sermon um, from the beginning of this message. And I'm not even ashamed of it. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right here, because uh, I do think we're living in the golden age of Christian preaching. I mean, we are drowning in content as Christians here in America between YouTube and podcasts and commentaries and worship music. And so, I think it'd be a little foolish of me not to bring uh, some of the best content that I've heard and share it with you. So I hope his thoughts bless you this morning. Well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we'll be today. I'll really only focus in on verse 1, believe it or not, uh, but I highly encourage you to take notes as you follow along. Uh, the teachings and weeks following will kind of build upon this morning's message. 
Uh, what I want to do today is provide a bit of context of where Matthew 6 sits in our Bibles and where we're headed in the weeks and months to come. Um, hopefully, it'll provide some context into what this beautiful chapter in this series is all about. Uh, but before we do that, let's bow our heads and pray to the Lord. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to hear, learn from, and obey your word. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. And God, would you please dunk on the devil today the way John ja Morant dunked on the Indiana Pacers last night. We pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Y'all see that video? Last, if, if you didn't, you need to check it out. Woo! Would have worn my John Morant jersey this morning if the elders let me. I mean, Memphis till I die, baby. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18 is in the middle of a collection of teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is maybe Jesus' most central and important teaching in all of Scripture. If there were a home base in the Bible, chapters 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew would be a pretty safe place to land. A full interpretation of the sermon is beyond the scope of this series, but suffice to say, Jesus is offering his first followers a whole new way to be human. Throughout this sermon, he sets an incredibly high bar for what it means to follow him, to live in God's kingdom, God's way. Jesus, as the new Moses, appeals again and again to Old Testament teachings and says things like, you have heard it was said, but I say unto you. You have heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say unto you, if anyone even looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard it was said, do not murder. But I say unto you, if anyone even curses their neighbor in their heart, they are liable to the judgment of hell. Again, you have heard it was said, love thy neighbor. That's a good start, right? We believe that. Jesus is like, that's, that's pretty good, but I, I actually want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for and intercede for those who curse you. This teaching would have shocked and confounded his first hearers. In fact, combined with Jesus's claim to be God, to be divine, the Sermon on the Mount is actually one of the main reasons why he was later arrested, crucified, and killed. His words were offensive, shocking, and even blasphemous because by saying these things, he was in effect setting himself on par with God. And many of us today are still pretty shocked by Jesus's words. In fact, we're so shocked that we often dismiss them as an unreasonable set of ethical burdens that no one could possibly uphold. We're too sinful, we think. Who could possibly keep these commandments? As someone who lusts and gets angry and fails to love his neighbor, much less his enemies, on a pretty regular basis, I sympathize with that way of thinking. But because the standard Jesus sets isn't just hard, it's impossible, apart from the Spirit of God. Jesus highlights this tension pretty clearly in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, everyone say surpasses, that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are basically two ways to interpret this verse. 
The first is what I would call the Reformed view, hearkening back to the Reformation of Martin Luther in the 1500s when Protestants split off from the Catholic Church. And this would basically be the tradition that we stand in as a church. The logic of the Reformed view goes, because of this impossibly high moral standard, Jesus can't be talking about personal righteousness. No, no, no. He's talking about an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that God himself gives us to sinners on our behalf, the great exchange, right? On the cross, Jesus took our sins, and then we get his spotless record. He takes our F, and we get his A. Our righteousness can now surpass the Pharisees because our righteousness is based on Christ's performance, not our own. Glory, glory, hallelujah, amen? While I'm all for that interpretation theologically, you don't get there exegetically, at least not on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount. And let me be clear, our justified status as sinners who are made righteous before a holy God is based only and always on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, full stop. But that doesn't then mean that we are now free to discard Jesus's command simply because we're not perfect, just forgiven. Anybody seen that bumper sticker? It's pretty good. I think my mom had one back in the day. But Jesus won't let us off the hook that easily. Because if we're not careful, the danger of the reform view, in my estimation, is that we begin to live lives that make us consumer of Christ's merit only rather than disciples of Christ's way. We were made to be both. No, we were saved at conversion by grace alone through faith alone. We are being saved progressively, gradually, day by day, conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. And we will one day be saved fully and finally when we meet God in heaven. And to discount any part of the spiritual journey along the way is to do a disservice to the true gospel. The second view of Matthew 5 verse 20 is what I would call the biblical view, which is a pretty biased way of putting things. (laughs) But it's the view that we surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by going beyond their righteousness. In other words, our righteousness can exceed theirs only because ours goes beyond merely external appearances. We move past religious performance that's seen on the outside into total transformation of the heart on the inside. Jesus himself says in the verse prior, or I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 19 through 20, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, internal. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands, that does not defile someone. Translation, external performance won't clean you up. Real righteousness has to come from the inside out. It is our conviction as a church that on the basis of Christ's alien righteousness given to us at salvation, we can now be progressively, slowly, not in this lifetime, but little by little made into the kinds of people whose personal righteousness reflects Christ's perfect righteousness. Amen? Not through performative religion or willpower, but through an inner renewal of the heart. And how do we do this? by following the ways of Jesus's commands with wholehearted obedience. The master himself says in the verse prior, verse 19, 
Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices, everyone say practices, and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Keeping Christ's commands is a pretty big deal to God. Hope we're getting the picture. And, and please know, if all of this sounds kind of workspace, what I'm saying to you this morning, just know that we're not earning our salvation. We are working out our salvation. All of this is training for righteousness, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. It's a response to the grace that God has given. And Dallas Willard maybe says it best, grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. We aren't earning our salvation, friends. That's impossible and honestly a pretty laughable endeavor. But our efforts to live holy, upright lives in this present age please our Father and cause us to shine before a waiting and watching world. But I don't want to fool you. This way of living is hard. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The Jesus way is not an impossible way, but it is a narrow and difficult one. And most importantly, it is the only way that leads to life and life to the full. Over the next eight weeks, we'll examine three key practices or disciplines that Jesus describes for his followers to obey. They're found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. They are almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Now, just out of curiosity, I'm curious to hear from you. When you think of spiritual disciplines, when you think of the practices that you're supposed to do to follow Jesus, what are some of the first ones that come to your mind? I'm sorry? Fasting? Okay, great. Bible reading, yep. Praying, absolutely. Tithes and offerings, giving your tithes, yep. Anything else? Worship, yeah, definitely. Going on a mission trip, maybe, you know. If, if you were to ask me with the top three practices, hey, Hunter, if you do this, you have a great relationship with God. Almsgiving ain't making the list. <laughs> it's not coming to the top of my mind. Prayer, probably. Fasting, heck to the nana on that. Brother, love me some double-double cheeseburgers from in and out And in 2023... We probably don't think of these at the top of our mind. Yet when Jesus decided to give one of his most important teachings, these three practices are what immediately came to his mind. Almsgiving, which is a fancy way of saying care for the poor. Prayer, that is speaking intimately and unaffectedly with God as our Father. And fasting, which is simply growing physically hungry so that we can be spiritually fulfilled. And in this chapter, notice that, Jesus says, when you give, verse 2, when you pray, verse 5, and when you fast, verse 16. Not if you give, if you pray, or if you fast. No, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting were central elements in Jewish religion, and all were assumed to still be valid for Jesus' disciple. The issue is not whether you should do them, but how and why. The motivation is what mattered. These practices, Jesus' way of going about them was as radically countercultural then as it is now. 
In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, our Savior, but also our teacher, puts on the latex gloves, he dons the white lab coat, and he performs triple bypass surgery on the human heart. With a surgeon's precision, he meticulously examines the internal motivations of our soul, religious people especially. His question for them and for us is, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast, do you do it for other people's approval, or do you do it, as John said, from the approval of your father? The problem for us today, though, is a bit more complicated. Because in an increasingly post-Christian, anti-Christian society, newsflash, we don't give, we don't pray, and we sure as heck don't fast. <laughs> Yet we are every bit as performative in the cultivation of our external identities as the Pharisees were in Jesus' day. Particularly in the digital age, think about the amount of time and value we place on cultivating our external identities. We follow things like the number of likes we receive on Twitter or TikTok, how we promote our career accomplishments on LinkedIn, how we manicure our homes through aesthetic perfection via Pinterest, how we virtue signal our political ideologies online through groupthink and sharing links and hashtags, or perhaps we promote the extravagance of our recreational life. We're always on the go. One weekend, it's Hey, Aspen. Next weekend, it's Hey, Austin. Next weekend, it's Hey, Southwest Airlines. I hate you so much because you lost my baggage over Christmas break, and I hope you go bankrupt in Jesus' name, hypothetically speaking. Whatever it is, today's religion is a religion of the self. It's all about me, 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 and we're more willing than ever to parade our devotion to the altar of self than ever before. In a world like ours, we stand at just as much risk as the followers of Jesus did 2,000 years ago of falling into the trap of religious performance. And when we play to the peanut gallery, my friends, Jesus says we forfeit any reward from our Father in heaven. Matthew 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Be careful, Jesus says. Guard your heart, Proverbs says, because any one of us can instantly become infected by the religion of me. If Jesus' invitation to life is a way or a road, then I think there are at least two ditches that we can fall into on either side of our journey of following Jesus. They are the way of the world and the way of religion. A brief word on each. First, the way of the world. Everybody doing good this morning? We doing all right? That's the introduction, baby. So go ahead and give, give your neighbor a fist bump. Say, I'll see you on the way. I'll see you on the way. Gotta get some water. Thank you. I'm dying. Parched mouth up here. Thank you. Thank you. See you on. Nobody gave fist bumps, man. Come on, get some fist bumps. See you on the way. See you on the way. All right. All right. A uh, definition of the world first might help. When we talk about the world, we're not talking about the created order. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything seen and unseen. So we're not talking about the natural order of God's good creation. Rather, when scripture speaks about the world, it usually means something like the toxic system of ideas, values, and behaviors present in human society 
that revolves around the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. That's a mouthful, I know. I'll say it again. The world is the toxic system of ideas, values, and behaviors present in human society that revolves around the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 may be the best description of the world I've ever seen. The apostle whom Jesus loved had this to say, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I want to cue in on those three phrases there, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. And I can think of no better picture of these three phrases than Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. At the very beginning of creation, Scripture recounts in Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Back to the very beginning, we see human beings made in the image of God, grasping what was not theirs for the taking. This is the essence of the human condition, and it is the basis of all worldliness. Even King David, the great warrior poet, anointed and appointed by God, did the same. 2 Samuel chapter 11, at the time when kings go out to war, it happened late one afternoon that David got up from his bed and walked about on the roof of the king's house. And he saw, notice the similarity here, a woman bathing on her roof. Now the woman was very beautiful, tova. She was pleasing to the eyes. David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba taking a bath, the daughter of Eliam? You'll get that joke later. The wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her. It's the exact same three words that we find in Genesis chapter 3. David saw... She was good, so he took. Warning, my friends, this can happen to you. If Adam and Eve in perfect paradise with unadulterated relationship with their maker can defile shalom, and if David, the man after God's own heart, can be seduced by the deceitfulness of sin and rape another woman's wife, what makes us think that we are any safer? Like carbon monoxide subtly filtering into the vents of a home, the ways of this world have a silent but deadly way of creeping into the recesses of our soul. Redefining good and evil, justifying immoral thinking and behavior, and ultimately placing us in opposition to God. This should give us reason for pause, my brothers and sisters. This should make us want to guard our hearts this morning. The first great danger, the way of the world. If not even more deadly, though, is the way of religion. We've spoken of the dangers of religion at length already, but one helpful definition of religion might be a self-assured attempt at dealing with the disaster of the human condition by manipulating the divine through ritualistic performance and dutiful devotion. A self-assured attempt at dealing with the disaster of the human condition by manipulating the divine through ritualistic performance and dutiful devotion. 
In Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah and says, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching others doctrines, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Hypocrites, Jesus says. Probably no more damning word we could say in our culture than that. It's a harsh word, but it's the right word. Like an ancient Greek actor on stage, hypocrites, ancient or modern, live with a mask, constantly playing to the crowd, always performing for public validation to be seen, to be heard, to be affirmed. The result is a total disconnect between their internal nature and their external identity. Most of my friends who deconstructed left the Christian faith over the past few years, did so not because of their disagreements with the truth of Christianity. Some did. But nine times out of ten, they didn't struggle with the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Was he born of a virgin? Is eternal life something we can believe in? No, no, no. Most of them left their faith over the utter disgust with the way those who claimed to have the truth lived their lives. The church in America is well known for our allegiance to the truth, but far too often the manner in which we go about proclaiming and then demonstrating that truth stand in utter opposition. And the truth of Jesus without the way of Jesus will not produce the life of Jesus. If we want to experience the life of Jesus, Providence, then we have to recover the lifestyle of Jesus the way of heartfelt humility, spirit-led devotion, commitment to justice and care for the poor. I was driving down Santa Fe this past Wednesday about five o'clock and thinking about this message, praying for you. And I had to honestly ask myself, how much of my religious activity is motivated by the praise of men? I mean, honestly, I've been a Christian for two decades now. What percentage of Hunter Hambrick's life is curated in the hopes of applause from others? How often do I serve or care for people out of a basic desire to receive recognition? And the answer was, way more times than you want to know, and way more times than I care to admit. Being a pastor is deadly stuff. This is a dangerous profession. I'm a professional Christian, for crying out loud. (laughs) Whenever I find myself playing to the crowd, it's usually because I'm simply afraid of rejection. I want acceptance. I want affection. I want approval. And left to my own devices, I think you'll do the same. We'll do whatever it takes to hide, cover up, wear the mask, whatever it takes to be better received by people. But the good news of Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 18, is that who I am in the secret place, not the public place, is who I really am. And the secret place is the only place that my father is looking. He sees me. He knows me. Why on earth would I hide from him or anyone else? As John referenced just a few moments ago, a couple chapters before Matthew chapter 6, we see Jesus' baptism in Matthew 
chapter 3, before he's performed a single miracle, before he's told a single parable, before he's healed a single sick person, the heavens open, the spirit descends in bodily form as a dove, and we hear the voice of God in heaven speak a blessing over his son. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In this brief scene, we find the three aspects of blessing that all of our hearts long for most. Acceptance, this is my beloved son. Affection, whom I love and affirmation. In him, I am well pleased. My friends, you have that this morning if you're in Christ. If you are a Christian today, your father looks at you and he sees Jesus. When my father looks at me, he sees his son. Because of what Christ did for us on the cross, the creator of the universe looks at me, he accepts me, he has affection for me, and he affirms me full stop. No asterisks, no read the fine print, no only on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. No, this is a total blessing from our father. And in order to follow Jesus down this road of life that he's calling us to, I really, really believe, friends, that we have to get rid of this performative orphan spirit. Because without these three key blessings, we will continue to live life from a spirit of anxiety, insecurity, and irritability. And let me tell you what, more moralistic guilt, more religious devotion, more Christian content and activity will not result in the life that God has on tap. Trust me, I've tried it. Your heavenly father does not want rule following or religious observance only. He does want that. He wants you to obey him. But he wants a vital, life-giving relationship of acceptance, affection, and affirmation as the foundation. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. There is a better way, my friends than the way of this world or the way of religion. And this way is named Jesus. It's the way of Jesus. The best way I know how to define the Jesus way is human hearts adopted by (laughs) and abiding in the love of the Father through the power of the Spirit, then reproducing the character, priorities, and actions of the Son in the world and its systems. The Jesus way is human hearts adopted by and abiding in the love of the Father through the power of the Spirit, reproducing the character, the priorities, and the actions of the Son in the world and its systems. Brothers and sisters, we are about to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. tomorrow, his life and his legacy. I can think of few people who modeled this, who embodied this better than Dr. King. This is not a a Gnostic religion. This is a religion that receives the love in the secret place and then goes out and performs the Jesus this way in the public. Thank God for him. If you read the book of Acts, you know that the earliest Christians were first called followers of the way. This is where we get this language. Jesus is our Lord and Savior, but he's also our rabbi. He came first and foremost as a Jewish teacher, and he left instructions for his disciples, his followers, his mathetes, his apprentices to follow. He's not just a teacher but he's certainly not less than a teacher. And as our Lord, he deserves full acceptance and obedience to his commands. 
And the truth is, whether you're a Jesus follower or not in this room, all of us are following someone or something. You may say, I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I don't follow anybody. Well, let me just go ahead and tell you that ideology of the self is from our cultural moment. (laughs) All of us are followers. The question isn't, are you a disciple? The question is, who or what are you being discipled by? The question isn't, are you a follower? The question is, who or what are you following? Because the answer to that question, my friends, determines everything. Who we become in our apprenticeship, our following of our master Jesus, determines everything about us. And I have good news for you this morning. The way of Jesus may be narrow, but it stands wide open to you. Got a little religion in your spirit? Have the ways of this world snuck into your heart? Jesus stands with arms wide open, ready to receive you this morning. And the icing on the cake is, you don't have to go it alone. You have a community, a school of Jesus followers, his students who are eager to journey with you on the way. Getting these habits and practices of care for the poor, prayer, fasting, these are some of the ways that we're committed to following Jesus along the way in this city. And we'll unpack each of them in the weeks and months to come. But this morning, all I want to do is invite you back on the way, the only way that really matters, the only road that leads to life. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to invite the music team back on stage this morning as we close in worship. And as they come, I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. I took the liberty of channeling my own Eugene Peterson, and I made a paraphrase of Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 18. And as you bow your heads, as you close your eyes, I hope you feel the Spirit of God impressing these truths upon your heart as we prepare as a community to journey down this way together. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Take care that y'all don't manufacture a good reputation before others just so they'll oogle at you. If you do, you'll forfeit any reward from your Father in heaven. So then, whenever you're doing good deeds of kindness, don't announce your activity on Instagram for the whole world to see. That's what hypocrites do. Everywhere from the church pew to the back alley, they update their spiritual timelines just to be glorified by people. As surely as I'm standing here, they've already received their maximum reward. But when you do good deeds of kindness, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In this way, your natural acts of mercy will be done in secret. And your father who sees in secret will surely sign the check and pay your tab in full. And whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who savor the sweet seats in the sanctuary. On every street corner, they set up prayer shops in order to shine and shimmer before humans. As surely as I'm standing here, they've received their full reward. But when you pray, go into your kitchen pantry or bedroom closet, the most hidden place of your home, and lock and bolt the door securely behind you. Pray to your Father in that secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will surely reward you with the greatest show of affection and affirmation you could ever imagine. 
Therefore, whenever y'all pray, don't go on babbling like the godless pagans, for they imagine that they'll be heard by God because of their unending wordiness and long-winded speeches. Don't be like them, for your Father knows all of your needs before you even say them. Therefore, y'all pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, make your name distinguished above all others. Let your royal reign take dominion. Let your desires come about as in heaven, so on earth. Our daily bread, whatever our current needs may be, supply them to us today and cancel our debts to the degree that we pardon our debtors, those who do us wrong. Don't let us get tripped into the trappings of sin, but rescue us from the evil one. For whenever you forgive other people their offenses, your heavenly Father does the exact same thing to you. And in case you missed the point, remember this. Whenever y'all don't forgive others, don't expect your heavenly Father to get off his royal throne to hand you a pardon. Whenever y'all fast, don't be like the sad and sullen hypocrites, for they make their faces unkempt and unrecognizable in hopes that their religious rituals might be clearly seen before men, mere mortals. But as surely as I'm standing here, they've received their maximum recognition. When y'all fast, anoint your heads with oils, scrub between those pores, so that y'all's fasting may not be seen by people, but rather by your Father in secret. And I assure you this, your Father, who sees into every nook and cranny of the secret and hidden places of your life, will surely reward you to the fullest extent possible. Stand with me this morning as we respond to God and worship. <clears throat> 